Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. I'm Kenneth Kukie, senior editor and the host of Babbage. Today, I'm joined by Matt Kaplan, one of our science correspondents, and Alexandra Suich, our U.S. technology editor. In this episode, we'll discuss new ways to detect explosives as the risk of suicide bombs increases. And we'll discuss the new and subtle challenges and powerful competitive advantages of Facebook. First, explosives. Matt, the Brussels bombings, as well as the tragic bombings in other places like Turkey and Pakistan, has thrown a harsh spotlight on the shortcomings of current detection technology for explosives. You've been writing a story on the subject for next week's issue. What are the chemicals used in so many of these recent bombings that we are currently blind to? Well, with regards to the Brussels bombings, the explosives that were used were triacetone triperoxide, which, you know, this is not an explosive that most militaries would be comfortable with using because you jostle this stuff and it blows up in your hands. But if you're a fundamentalist who is planning on sacrificing a life anyway, they make attractive compounds because, frankly, triacetone triperoxide is really easy to get locally. You just make it. Yeah, you can make it from things like you know, compounds like paint thinner and hair bleach solutions. And then you need a catalyst, an acid usually, like acetic acid or nitric acid or sulfuric acid. And frankly, those things aren't that hard to get a hold of either. Okay, so it's the terrorist choice of home-brewed explosives, but we're getting better now at detecting it. To a degree, yes. So sniffer dogs are certainly capable of picking up on triacetone, triperoxide, because it sheds hydrogen peroxide compounds into the air, and dogs can smell that. But for a really long time, sniffer dog units were really careful about trying to teach their dogs to find this stuff, because it's so unstable, even small amounts that are shedding the chemicals into the air will blow up and kill the dogs. That is now being circumvented by a team in the United States who have found a way to make triacetone triperoxide inert inside polymer beads, which when you heat up, they yield the scent, but they don't become explosive. So you can teach dogs to do this, but still, practically, it's just financially unviable to have a sniffer dog unit outside of, what was it, Malbec Station in Brussels and outside Zaventem Airport and outside every station that's crowded in the UK. You just can't do that. So there's new research that suggests we have a new way of detecting it. A team led by University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign has been looking at the possibility of putting out what's effectively a lot like litmus paper, you know, the stuff you would stick into a chemical solution and have it change color. They're using the same sort of stuff and seeing if it can be sensitive enough to change color when, for example, hydrogen peroxide strikes it, even in very, very low concentrations in the air. And what they're finding is that they can. With regards to triacetone triperoxide, this team has been able to demonstrate that ferrous chloride, which normally creates sort of a blue-green color on the paper, will turn yellow-brown in the presence of hydrogen peroxide being yielded into the air. 
And that's useful because if you now have a color change, you can say, okay, hydrogen peroxide is floating out around in the air near here. Now, someone could be bleaching their hair outside Zaventem Airport in the car park, or someone's messing around with triacetone triperoxide and we should beware. Why can't you just pack your explosives so carefully that it's, in effect, airtight? It's hard to completely hermetically seal your explosives so that you're not shedding anything. That's why dogs are so good at detecting things, even if you pack them super tight, super protected inside a suitcase. Dogs are going to detect if you've got cocaine. They're going to detect if you've got explosives. So... The idea here is for the technology to be able to do that, too. They're using technology similar to business card scanners to scan in real time the litmus paper type equipment that they've developed so that it can detect whether or not a color change has occurred and send that through a digital readout. And how expensive is this technology? Well, it's not commercially available yet. The array that would go inside a scanner is less than a dollar to build for each array. And that's great, but it's kind of problematic in that right now, it's a little bit like a chemical fuse. If you expose it to the chemicals associated with an explosive, it gets used up. It's changed color. It can't be used again. So you would have to use a new clean sheet of litmus paper, effectively, to be able to detect if there are new chemicals around. And you can do that if you were to put everything onto a spool, similar to, say, you remember old cameras where they had film spooled up? Sure. You could kind of put a spool together of litmus paper and have it spool out every time that the scanner detects that the papers become exposed and needs to be shifted over. You could even potentially have them bypass humans and say, you know what? We're detecting really distressing compounds in this area. We're just going to close this metro station for the next 30 minutes while we take a look at what's going on. So if this shows so much promise, when do you think we might actually see it implemented? Well, the researchers at Urbana-Champaign are collaborating with a firm out of Silicon Valley called iSense, and they expect to have it available to the U.S. military and security forces by 2017. Its first form will take shape as a handheld scanner, but the next step would be to try to create these spools, which then are attached to devices that are networked so that you can do that autonomously and not have to use up human resources outside every mall and metro station in busy cities. Thank you, Matt. Moving on now to the world's largest population, not China or India, but Facebook. Joining us on the line from San Francisco is Alexandra Sweech, our U.S. technology editor. This week, she's writing about Mark Zuckerberg, the company's co-founder and CEO. Alexandra, Facebook is changing in some subtle and interesting ways. What is Zuckerberg's vision? Facebook began life, as you know, in 2004 in a Harvard dorm room. And the idea was to add transparency and identity to the internet. It's moved from that app to an array of apps. So Facebook itself, in spite of many predictions to the contrary, is still extremely successful, has now 1.6 billion monthly users, around a billion log on every day. It still has a lot of engagement across the world. But there are now other apps that are part of the Facebook family where people spend a lot of time. And so some have suggested that Facebook is starting to look like a holding company for communications apps. It it owns Instagram, which is a photo sharing uh, social network, and it owns messaging platforms like WhatsApp, which it bought a couple of years ago for around $22 billion. And it's also created Facebook Messenger. And messaging apps, are also highly addictive. You can communicate with your friends directly, sort of like instant messaging for free, so you avoid the fees of text messaging. Now, Alexandra, it wasn't obvious why Facebook several years ago would be acquiring all of these companies at huge 
valuations that many people at the time thought that he had overpaid. Yet it seems now to be a brilliant move. Was it? Is that your view? It's funny that one of the recurring themes of Facebook's history at this point is that at at many points, people suggest that they are the poster child for a tech bubble. That was true when they got their initial investment, but had no, you know, no viable revenue stream, really. It was true when they bought Instagram for $1 billion. People thought that was a shockingly huge sum to pay for a company that had no business model and 13 engineers working for them. Again, when they bought WhatsApp, I think that Mark Zuckerberg has always been very forward looking. So he's been willing to pay, even if the consensus is that he's overpaying, he's been willing to pay for good ideas that keep people within his garden. I think that he's been very good at recognizing competition early and then having the pride to be willing to actually pay up huge multiples for something that will pay off later. And where does he want to take the company now? I think one of the popular misconceptions about Facebook is that it is just its core social network. It has these other apps. But where where I think he sees it going is I think he perceives Facebook to be a technology company at heart with a focus on communication. And I think that can go in a lot of different directions. So he's looking to the, toward the future, making three big bets. One is in artificial intelligence. Another is in virtual reality. And another is in connectivity, so connecting the world and bringing people online. All three of those will eventually affect Facebook's bottom line. In the near term, I think artificial intelligence is going to be the investment that pays off most heavily. Already, artificial intelligence is used in helping target people with specific ads, match you to your Facebook friends, and filter spam. And I think it's going to have many applications in the near future, in the next five years, say. They're working on bringing AI into messaging services so that you can communicate with businesses and then fulfill tasks through messaging. I think that AI is going to be what brings in the near-term profits and really proves to the world that Facebook is about more than just a social network. Okay. So in your examination of the company, I'm interested to know, what do you see as its Achilles heel? I think there are a couple of potential weaknesses. One is There was this myth that social networks would never have longevity. I think that Facebook has disproved that for the time being, but its success hinges on being able to keep people going to its flagship product and spending a lot of time. It's going to want to keep people there even longer in the future by showing them videos and having that be the hub for their friend groups and their kind of main portal for communication. The weakness is that after this sustained run, that has defied the critics because people have stayed with Facebook and it's only grown, whether a rival will come up that Facebook is unable or unwilling to buy. And one that I think poses the greatest threat is Snapchat. Previously, people thought Twitter was going to be the one who kind of took a nibbled at the at Facebook's heel. But actually, I think Snapchat, especially amongst teenagers, could really reach a whole generation and attract them away from Facebook to Snapchat as their main portal for communication. So that's a main risk. Now, earlier, several years ago, you wrote a fantastic special report that was on our cover looking at ad tech and saying that the new business model of the internet was surveillance. 
Did you pose questions about privacy and the collection of data to Mark Zuckerberg when you spoke to him? So I said that competitive risk was a, it was a main concern for Facebook. I think the other is privacy. And Mark Zuckerberg's view is that people are going to want to share information freely in the future. You could call it Zuckerberg's law. He thinks that people are going to share more and more as the kind of as the future continues, just kind of like chips got smaller and smaller. I am not convinced that that is true. I think he's waiting for that to happen, but I think that the internet has freed people to communicate more freely, but that people still want privacy controls. And so Facebook has had to become much more mature about that and transparent itself in providing controls by which you can set who sees what online. Privacy, I think, in the next five years may be Facebook's biggest headache. Thank you, Alexandra, for joining us from Silicon Valley. Before we sign off, it's time to read out some of the tweets we've received about last week's show. The second part of our story on last week's episode was whether supersonic flight could be resurrected with less of the sonic boom. Ronald Calabarro flagged his skeptical opinion to this, saying, quote, More important than the boom is the aerodynamic drag. Supersonic civilian transport uses too much fuel. Matt, what's your reaction to that? Well, I know you, as you get closer to the sound barrier, but don't break it, it gets increasingly expensive to push against that barrier. But once you break through it, it's smooth sailing. So in other words, it could theoretically use less fuel. If you break through the barrier without consuming that much, yes. Okay, well, we'll find out as new technologies are developed. If you have anything to say about this week's show, you can find us on Twitter at EconSciTech and on our Facebook page at The Economist. That's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. For more news on science and technology, visit Economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. <laughs> 